Warning, this podcast contains scenes of murder, abuse, and some explicit language intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first official episode of Wild Show with Kai. I'm your host, Kai. I'll be honest, I'm releasing this episode a bit later than anticipated because I decided to change the topic at the last minute. But like I said, I gotta figure my shit out. But finally, here we are. For those who are interested, the books I got caught reading in elementary school are The Most Evil Men and Women in History by Miranda Twist and The Most Evil Women in History by Shelley Klein. I want to give both of these authors a shout out for inspiring my love for true crime and weird history. If any of you decide to check them out, I'm curious to know what you think. Today's case is a whirlwind if I've ever seen one. I first heard about this case from Parcast Network's show, Serial Killers. The story had so many levels, it left me in awe and with so many questions. How could someone go to such extreme lengths to get what they want, even though they probably don't even deserve it? On top of that, how can someone so easily lure people into their trap and submit to their every demand? Well... I guess it is easier if you're good-looking, seemingly wealthy, and charismatic. But what if all of these qualities are just based on lies and deceit? If you're ready to find out, then let's go. It's going to be a wild fucking ride. Never wound a snake. Kill it. Harriet Tubman. Snakes instill fear in many people, a fear that not many animals can match. Snakes, much like humans, suffer greatly from changes in their environment. The isolation that's met when their home is broken and not being able to easily move forward in the rough terrain. To push through, they do whatever it takes to survive. Like snakes, there are some humans that deal with the hardships in life, but don't feel the need to poison those around them in order to get through the day. We believe that we'll know exactly which ones are dangerous, but that's just not true. In the English language, when we call someone a snake, it usually means that they are two-faced, a backstabber, and a manipulator. This killer's nickname couldn't be more fitting. I bring you the case of Charles Sobrage, the Serpent. Charles Sobrage, also known as the Serpent and the Bikini Killer, would poison, rob, and murder his victims by strangulation and drowning. He allegedly committed at least 12 murders, if not more. So Brash has tried to sell rights to his story many times, 
reportedly trying to charge up to $15 million. But because factual information is not copyrightable, it is possible that some of the information presented today may not be complete or 100% factual. Since watching The Serpent on Netflix, I just wanted to add that I have changed some of the names of victims and persons involved in this case for respect and privacy purposes. Before I get to the string of murders, let me tell you a little bit about his childhood and life before crime. Born April 6th, 1944, Hotchan Bawani Gurmuk Sobraj was the illegitimate son of Vietnamese peasant named Song and wealthy Indian merchant Gurmuk Sobraj in Saigon, modern Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam. Soon after his birth, Sobraj's father married an Indian woman in Puma. Out of spite, Song married a French military officer Alphonse Deroux, when Sobrage was only four years old. During that period, Sobrage was considered stateless. The reason why is because mainland Southeast Asia, previously coined as Indochina, was in turmoil, with French colonial troops fighting a hopeless rearguard tactic against Viet Minh communist rebels. Sobrage witnessed an insane amount of violence before his stepfather took the whole family to France in 1953. In France, he was neglected by his mother and stepfather in favor of their later children. Sobrage claimed he hated Europe and the Catholic boarding school in Paris, where he became the butt of all sorts of racial jokes and insults. If you're wondering how he adopted the name Charles, let me tell you. It was actually his school that changed his name, supposedly after his impersonation of Charlie Chaplin. Honestly, I kinda call bullshit on that. My main theory is that they changed his name to sound more white passing, because what French person has a name that's not a fucking saint or of religious nature? Tabarnak. But let's be real. We're talking about the 50s. We thought that there were some major racial issues now, which there are. Trust me, just look at the news every fucking day. But now let's imagine that tenfold, give or take, 70 years ago. Also, why does nobody talk about how Charlie Chaplin was pretty much a covert pedophile, with three out of his four wives being under 18 years old when he was already in his late 20s and 30s. Red flags much? But anyway, before I go off on a tangent about him, let's get back to the story. In an attempt to express his displeasure, Sobraj threw tantrums, wet the bed persistently, and ran away to Saigon twice. Sobraj's biological father sent him back to France each time, 
but finally agreed to pay his passage for a trial visit home. When that ticket never came, Sobrage turned to robbery and was sent to jail briefly after his second attempt. As you can see here, his life before crime, it didn't last that long. I believe he was a teen when he started robbing, so just to give you a little heads up. Eventually, he reached Vietnam on his own, but the family reunion was not what he expected, and it was very tense. Shortly after, he was sent packing and off to live with his relatives in India after wrecking his dad's car. When he showed up in Saigon again, uninvited, Sobraj's father had enough, parce que ça suffit, and sent him back to France. Once back in Paris, he was locked up twice for auto theft. Leaving jail for the second time, he desired to live a straight life. And again, I must note that this seriously did not last long, but am I surprised? Not really. He started accumulating riches through a series of robberies and scams. Sobraj was jailed again for forged checks under his sister's name. He was released only because his sister dropped the charges. Honestly, what a nice sister. I love both of mine, but if they did some shady shit like that to me, they deserve to get caught. Not entirely sure how long after, but Sobraj met and began a romantic relationship with Juliette Volquin, a young Parisian woman from a conservative family. Sobraj proposed marriage to Juliette, but was arrested later the same day for attempting to evade police while driving a stolen vehicle. He was sentenced to eight months in prison, yet Juliette remained supportive throughout the entirety of his sentence. Sobraj and Juliette were wed upon his release. Sobraj, along with now pregnant Juliette, left for France in 1970 for Asia to escape arrest. After traveling through Eastern Europe with fake documents, robbing tourists whom they befriended along the way, Sobraj arrived in Mumbai later the same year. Here is where Juliette would give birth to a baby girl, Madhu. In the meantime, Sobraj continued his criminal lifestyle, running a car theft and smuggling operation. Sobraj's growing profits went towards his budding gambling addiction. Based on my research, it wouldn't surprise me if he killed people before, but the first known victim to date was a Pakistani chauffeur named Habib, hired by Charles and a female companion in September 1972. For reasons unknown, Sobraj injected Habib with a drug that ultimately ended his life, then dumping the driver's body in a river. 
During this investigation, warrants were issued for a suspect by the name of Damon Seaman, but it would be another year until Sobrage would be identified. In 1973, Sobrage was arrested and imprisoned after an unsuccessful armed robbery attempt on a jewelry store at Hotel Ashoka. Sobrage was able to escape with Juliette's help by faking illness, but was recaptured shortly thereafter. Sobrage borrowed money for bail from his father and soon after fled to Kabul. There, the couple began to rob tourists on the hippie trail to be arrested again. For those who don't know, the hippie trail was the name given to the overland journey taken by members of the hippie subculture and others from the mid-1950s to the late 1970s between Europe and South Asia, mainly through Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and Nepal. It was a form of alternative tourism, and one of the key elements was traveling as cheaply as possible, mainly to extend the length of time away from home. Sobrage escaped in the same way he had in India, feigning illness and drugging the hospital guard. Honestly, I don't even know how he managed to smuggle drugs into the hospital prison, but didn't they pat him down or something? I don't even know. But anyway, Sobrage fled to Iran, leaving his family behind. Juliette, although still loyal to Sobrage after all of this fucking drama, but wishing to leave their criminal past behind, she returned to France and vowed to never see him again. Sobrage spent the next two years on the run, using as many as 10 stolen passports. He passed through various countries in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. Sobrage was joined by his younger half-brother, André, in Istanbul. Sobrage and André became partners in crime, participating in various criminal activities in both Turkey and Greece. The duo were eventually arrested in Athens. After an identity switch hoax went awry, Sobrage managed to escape once again, but left his half-brother behind. André was turned over to the Turkish police by Greek authorities and served an 18-year sentence. Honestly, researching this, Charles sounds like a fucking nightmare of a sibling. Even though this sounds really bad, I'm not surprised why his parents just couldn't deal with him or want to deal with him. In New Delhi, he entered the heroin trade, gaining a secure position in the cutthroat business with inside information obtained under drugs and torture from a local pusher whom Sobraj later killed. Murders seemed to come easier each time. Kind of like riding a bicycle, I guess. You do it once, even after a certain period of time, you get on. You know how to do it. 
no problem, with full-on ease. (sighs) That might be a bad analogy, but that's the first thing that came to my mind. And it is what it is. On the run, Sobraj financed his lifestyle by posing as either a gem salesman or drug dealer to impress and befriend tourists whom he defrauded. In India, Sobraj met Marie-André Leclerc from Lévis, Québec, a tourist looking for an adventure. Dominated by Sobraj, she became one of his most devoted followers, turning a blind eye to his crimes and his philandering with local women. Sobraj gathered followers by gaining their loyalty. A typical scam was to help his targets out of difficult situations. Using his fluency in French, he targeted many French tourists. In one case, he helped two former French policemen, Yannick and Jacques, recover missing passports that Sobraj himself had actually stolen. In another scheme, Sobraj provided shelter to a Frenchman, Dominique Renelot, who appeared to be suffering from dysentery. For those who aren't sure what that is, dysentery is an infection of the intestines that causes diarrhea containing blood or mucus. Other symptoms can include fever, abdominal pain, and feeling of incomplete defecation. But surprise, surprise, Sobraj was actually poisoning him. Sobraj was soon joined by a young Indian man, Ajay Chaudhry, a fellow criminal who became Sobraj's second in command. Sobraj wanted to start a criminal family of sorts, in the style of Charles Manson's. Many of their victims had been part of this family, and it is possible that they were killed to prevent them from going to authorities. It was then that Sobraj and Ajay committed their first known murders in 1975. Most of the victims had spent time with the clan before their deaths and were, according to some investigators, potential recruits who had threatened to expose Sobraj. The first victim was a young woman from Seattle, Teresa Knowlton. Knowlton had traveled from Bangkok and was en route to Kathmandu, where she was to study Tibetan Buddhism at Kopin Monastery. She met Sobraj, who allegedly offered to be her guide and take her to Pattaya Beach, where her body was later found burned. Soon thereafter, a young American, Jenny Boulevard, had traveled to Thailand to meditate and to experience the Buddhist lifestyle. When she met Sobraj, he tried to convince her to join his family, but she refused. Jenny was found drowned in a tidal pool in the Gulf of Thailand, near the town of Pattaya, wearing a flower-patterned bikini. A number of months passed before the autopsy results, combined with forensic evidence, proved that the drowning in fact to be a murder. A Turkish competitor in the drug trade, Vitali Hakim, was beaten, his neck snapped, his corpse doused with gasoline and set afire. 
Willem Bloem and his fiancée Helena Decker were Dutch students who had met Sobraj in Hong Kong. Sobraj had invited them to Thailand and they took him up on his offer, unfortunately. When they arrived, Sobraj poisoned them and then nursed them back to health. During this time, Stefan Perry, the girlfriend of Sobraj's previous victim, Hakim, came to investigate his disappearance. Anxious that she may discover what they had done, Sobraj and Ajay swiftly dealt with the problem. Willem and Helena's bodies were found strangled and burned on December 16, 1975. Later that same month, Stefan was found drowned in similar circumstances to Jenny, wearing a similar flower pattern bikini. At first, police investigators did not connect the two cases, but when they did, Sobraj became known as the bikini killer. So, let's just do a quick recap. Sobraj has already killed up to eight people that we know of. What in the actual fuck? Real talk? I would be so filled with anxiety that I wouldn't be able to function at all, let alone just being able to get up and go at any moment to not be detected by authorities. I myself am way too sedentary for that kind of lifestyle. Clearly, Sobraj and I are on completely different wavelengths, but it does not end here. Two days later, on December 18, 1975, the bodies of Willem and Helena were identified, so Sobraj decided it was time to move again. He and Marie-André used Willem and Helena's Dutch passports to enter Nepal. It was here they met two travelers, Laurent Ormand Carrier from Canada and Connie Bronzik from California, whom they befriended. Laurent and Connie were murdered and their burned bodies found on December 22, 1975. Some sources claim these victims were Ladi Duport and Annabella Tremont. Sobraj was questioned and then released by police in Kathmandu. Undetected, once again, Sobraj and Marie-André used Laurent and Connie's passports to return to Thailand before their victims were identified. Once there, Sobraj discovered his French family members, Yannick, Jacques, and Dominique, had begun to suspect him of being involved in the Pattaya murders. In Sobraj's absence, they had discovered documents belonging to the victims in the resort at which they stayed. And what was the first thing Sobraj does when being suspected of these heinous crimes? He fled to Calcutta, India, where he murdered an Israeli student, Avoni Jacob, simply for his passport. He used this to travel to Singapore with Marie-André and Ajay, and then on to India, and back to Bangkok in March 1976, despite knowing that the authorities there were waiting for him. 
Shortly after, Sobraj was questioned by Thai police in connection with the bikini murders, but was not charged. Why? Some sources claim the reason for this was their fear of the potential negative publicity adversely affecting the country's tourist trade such an action could create. Sobraj immediately left Thailand for Malaysia. I guess that's his typical move. Just wreck shit up and then bounce. Sounds like a lot of fuckboys, no? I guess he was like the ultimate fuckboy. Wow. Herman Nippenberg, a Dutch embassy diplomat, and his then-wife Angela Kane were investigating the murders of Willem and Helena, and Sobraj was his prime suspect. Nippenberg had some knowledge of and had possibly even met Sobraj, although the latter's true identity was still unknown to the diplomat. At this point, Sobraj was going by Alain Gautier. But either way, Nippenberg continued to gather evidence. With the help of Nadzin and Rémy Gir, Sobraj's neighbors, Nippenberg was able to build a case against him. He was eventually given police permission to search Sobraj's apartment a full month after the suspect had left the country. He uncovered evidence including documents belonging to the murder victims and poisoned medicines. He would then on accumulate evidence against Sobraj for decades, despite the lack of cooperation by law enforcement. Meanwhile in Malaysia, Sobraj and Ajay stole thousands of pounds worth of precious gems. Shortly after this, Ajay disappeared. Though Sobraj's accomplice was reportedly once seen in Germany in late 1976, the sighting was never verified. His remainings have never been found, and his case remains open. It is alleged that Sobraj murdered him before leaving Malaysia with Marie-André. The couple traveled to Geneva, Switzerland to sell their stolen jewels before returning to India to rebuild the criminal family. Soon back in Asia, Sobraj started rebuilding his clan, starting in Bombay with two lost Western women named Barbara Cheryl Smith and Mary Helen Ether. His next victim was Frenchman Jean-Luc Solomon, who succumbed to the poison intended to incapacitate. In July 1976, New Delhi, Sobraj, Marie-André, Barbara, and Mary managed to trick a group of postgraduate French students into accepting them as travel guides. Once again, Sobraj used his poison dysentery medicine on the group. However, this time it backfired because the poison began working a lot faster than he expected. When the first few students began falling where they stood, the others became alarmed and called the police. Sobraj and his group of three women were arrested and interrogated. Sobraj was charged with the murder of Jean-Luc Solomon and was sent with Marie-André, Barbara, 
and Mary to the infamous Tahar prison outside of New Delhi to await trial. Conditions at Tahar were extremely harsh, and both Barbara and Mary attempted suicide during the wait for their trial. Sobraj had entered with precious gems concealed in his body and was experienced in bribing captors and living comfortably in jail. He turned his trial into a spectacle, hiring and firing lawyers at will, bringing in his recently paroled brother Andre to assist, and eventually going on a hunger strike. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison. Marie-André was found guilty of drugging the French students, but was later paroled and returned to Canada when she developed ovarian cancer. She was still claiming her innocence and was reportedly still loyal to Sobrage when she died at her home in April 1984. She was 38 years old. Sobrage's systematic bribery of prison guards at Tahar reached outrageous levels. He led a life of luxury inside the jail, with television and gourmet food, befriending both guards and prisoners. He gave interviews to Western authors and journalists, such as Oz Magazine's Richard Neville in 1977 and Alan Dawson in 1984. While Sobrage freely talked about his murders, he denied what he said about them and pretended that his actions were in retaliation against Western imperialism in Asia, an excuse which most criminologists find highly doubtful. If you thought that Sobrage was a snake, listen to this. When Sobrage's sentence was soon ending, the 20-year Thai arrest warrant against him would have still been valid, making it possible to extradite him and almost certainly be executed. So, in March 1986, in his 10th year in prison, Sobrage threw a big party for his guards and fellow inmates, then proceeded to drug them with sleeping pills and walked right out of the jail. Inspector Madhukar Zende of the Mumbai police apprehended Sobraj in a restaurant in Goya, where his prison term was extended by 10 years, just as Sobraj hoped for. On February 17, 1997, 52-year-old Sobraj was released with most warrants, evidence, and even witnesses against him long lost. Without any country to extradite him to, Indian authorities let him return to France. Can you imagine how hard that must have been to let him go free after knowing all of those terrible crimes he committed? I would be livid if I were part of that investigation. Sobraj retired to a comfortable life in suburban Paris. He hired a publicity agent and charged large sums of money for interviews and photographs. He is said to have charged over $15 million, equivalent to $20 million in 2019, 
for the rights to a movie based on his life. Sobraj returned to Nepal, one of the few countries where he could still be arrested and where he was still eagerly sought by authorities. According to the Himalayan Times, Sobraj had returned to Kathmandu to set up a mineral water business. His return is thought to be the result of his yearning for attention and overconfidence in his own intellect. On September 1st, 2003, Sobraj was spotted by a journalist for the Himalayan Times in a casino in Kathmandu. The journalist followed him for two weeks and wrote a news report in the Himalayan Times with photographs. When the Nepal police saw the report, raided the casino, and arrested a blissfully unaware Sobraj who was still gambling there. The Nepal police reopened the double murder case from 1975 and got Sobraj sentenced to life imprisonment by the Kathmandu District Court on August 20, 2004, for the murders of Connie Bronzik and Laurent Carrier. Most of the photocopy evidence used against him in this case had been gathered by Nippenberg, the Dutch diplomat and Interpol. Sobraj appealed against the conviction, claiming that he had been sentenced without a trial. His lawyer announced that Juliette Valquin, Sobraj's wife, yes, they remarried, was filing a case before the European Court of Human Rights against the French government for refusing to provide him with any assistance. Sobraj's conviction was confirmed by the Patan Court of Appeals in 2005. In late 2007 news media, reported that Sobraj's lawyer had appealed to the then-French president Nicolas Sarkozy for intervention with Nepal. In 2008, Sobraj announced his engagement to a Nepali woman, Nehita Biswas, who later participated in the reality show Big Boss. The authenticity of the couple's relationship was confirmed in an open letter from American conductor David Woodard to the Himalayan Times. On July 7, 2008, issuing a press release through his fiancée Nikita, Sobraj claimed that he was never convicted of murder by any court and asked the media not to refer to him as a serial killer. Well, if you kill more than three people in a series and you have the same M.O., I think we have the right to call you a serial killer, no? It was claimed that Sobraj married his fiancée on October 9th, 2008, in jail during Bada Dishami, a Nepalese festival. The following day, Nepalese jail authorities dismissed the claim of his marriage. They said that Nahita and her family had been allowed to conduct a tikka ceremony along with the relatives of hundreds of other prisoners. They further claimed that it was not a wedding, but part of the ongoing Dashain festival when elders put the vermilion mark on the foreheads of those younger than them to signify their blessings. In July 2010, the Supreme Court of Nepal 
postponed the verdict of an appeal filed by Sobrage against a district court's verdict, sentencing him to life imprisonment for the murder of American backpacker Connie Bronzik in 1975. Sobrage had appealed against the district court's verdict in 2006, calling it unfair and accusing the judges of racism while handing out the sentence. On July 30, 2010, the Supreme Court upheld the verdict issued by the district court in Kathmandu of a life sentence for the murder of Connie Bronzik and another year plus a fine of 2,000 rupees, equivalent to 34 Canadian dollars, for entering Nepal illegally. An order by the court seized all of Sobraj's properties. Sobraj's supposed wife, Nahida, and mother-in-law, Shakuntala Thapa, a lawyer, expressed dissatisfaction with the verdict, with Thapa claiming that Sobraj had been denied justice and that the system is corrupt. She's not wrong, really, but I feel like it's a bit of a stretch in Sobraj's case. They were charged and sent to judicial custody for contempt of court because of these remarks. Well, when you run your mouth, you gotta watch out, right? I don't know. And to top this all off, on September 18, 2014, Sobraj was convicted in Bhaktapur District Court for the murder of Canadian tourist Laurent Carrier. In 2018, Sobraj was in critical condition and had been operated on multiple times. He had received several open-heart surgeries and was scheduled for more. As of this month, April 2021, he still remains in a Nepalese jail, aged 77 and in poor health. Sobraj has been the subject of three nonfiction books. Serpentine, 1979, by Thomas Thompson, The Life and Crimes of Charles Sobraj, 1980, by Richard Neville and Julie Clark, and the section titled The Bikini Killers, by Noelle Barber in the Reader's Digest collection, Great Cases of Interpol, 1982. Neville and Clark's book was the basis for a 1989 made-for-TV film, Shadow of the Cobra. In the episode Slither, part of the fifth season of Law & Order Criminal Intent, the character of Bernard Fremont, played by Michael York, is clearly based on Charles Sobrage. Fremont is killed off-screen, most likely by his former lover and accomplice, Nicole Wallace played by Olivia Dabo, who may have been partly based on Marie-André or Juliette. I apologize in advance if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. The 2015 Hindi film Main or Charles, directed by Prawal Raman and Cisnor Network, is reportedly based on Charles Sobraj's escape from Tahar Jail, New Delhi. The film was initially produced by Pooja Bhatt, but due to differences midway into the shoot, Pooja left the film. And lastly, 
An eight-part BBC-commissioned miniseries called The Serpent was broadcasted in the UK in January 2021, starring Tahar Rahim as Sobraj before being streamed on Netflix this month, April 2021. And there you have it. This case is so bonkers that you can't even make this shit up. For those that did watch the Netflix limited series, you can now see how some of the details were kind of left out, like Juliette's involvement in Sobrage's criminal life. Whereas in the show, it didn't really show that. It just looked like she was following him along. And even reportedly, Angela Kane, the real Angela Kane, did not particularly like her portrayal in the limited series. She believed that it downplayed her role in cracking the case. Journalist Andrew Anthony, who interviewed Sobraj twice, said that while the series captured his enigmatic detachment and quiet menace, it misses more of his troubling qualities of wit, charm, and a kind of playful sense of self-mythologizing. Despite this, I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I can tell you that half of the time, I was just yelling at my TV. After my retelling of this case, I still have some questions. What made him tick? What was his motive to kill? Well, there could be many factors at play here. Early childhood abuse, injury to the brain, and extremely indifferent or cruel parenting are often found in backgrounds of serial killers. In Sobraj's case, could it have been the traveling back and forth between his biological parents and the constant rejection and neglect enough to drive someone to serial homicide? Journalist Robert Hertz wrote, Until the psychopath came into focus, it was possible to believe that bad people were just good people with bad parents or childhood trauma. And with care, you could talk them back into being good. It's also noted that criminologist Bob Hare's research suggested that some people behaved badly even when there has been no sign of early trauma. Bob Hare's findings help explain the behavior of men like Charles Sobrage. Unlike many serial killers, Sobrage killed for economic and personal gain. He only wanted the passports and identity papers of his victims because it made it easier for his jewel and drug smuggling operations. Sobrage wasn't driven to kill by perverse sexual desire nor did he get any particular satisfaction out of homicide. The people he killed were merely in the way. They had something that Sobraj wanted, so he took it. If I have ever killed or have ordered killings, then it was purely for reasons of business. Just a job like a general in the army, Sobraj told journalist Richard Neville, during his trial in India. Psychopaths like Sobraj are incapable of feeling remorse. To them, the phrases, I want to kill you and I want to kiss you, carry the same emotional value. 
The concept of fear is almost unknown to them, so threat of punishment will never be a deterrent. When he was captured, being able to escape most of the time, I'm sure just fueled this idea. Within the psychopath diagnosis is a subdivision of behavior that analysts call the puppet master. This class is made up of men like Charles Sobrage, although killers like him only make up a small percentage. Industrial psychologist Paul Babiak attributes a trio of motivations to psychopaths. One, thrill-seeking. Two, an almost insatiable desire to win. And three, the propensity to injure others. They'll jump on any opportunity that allows them to do those things, he says. If something better comes along, they'll drop you and move on. In one of Sobrage's earliest encounters with crime, he once explained to his mother that he could always find an idiot to do what he wanted. The comment came when 10-year-old Sobrage was accused of inducing his stepbrother to rob a shopkeeper. Bob Hare also notes how imprisoned psychopaths learn how to tell parole boards and society exactly what they want to hear. He stated that they can repeat all the psychiatric jargon. Quote, I feel remorse. They talk about the offense cycle, but these words are hollow words. Sobrage dealt with major abandonment issues during his formative years. He grew up feeling his parents' indifference to his existence. His mother, Song, was abandoned by the Indian merchant soon after Sobrage was born, and she blamed Sobrage for her lover's dismissal. His biological father wanted little to do with him during his childhood, but as a child, Sobrage twisted it around in his head to believe that his father was a mythic, heroic figure. Even though Song's new husband, French officer Alphonse Deroux, was willing to adopt Sobrage, he did not give the boy his name. Deroux was kind to Sobrage, but as the other children were born, Sobrage began to feel more and more like an outsider in his own home. As for Deroux, who had suffered shell shock during a battle and for the rest of his life was in and out of hospitals for post-traumatic stress disorder, looked at Sobrage as a drain on scarce family resources. It's shown that parental malparenting does have an intense impact over the personality disorders in the later years. With his experience of very severe bullying in his childhood, it may have resulted in wrath and antisocial tendencies in later years. Analysis of several cases show that there is an intense correlation between bullying victimization and a wide range of adverse health and psychosocial problems. When he was arrested for burglary in Paris and sentenced to three years behind bars, he went to prison estranged from his family. Alone, without anyone who cared whether he lived or died, Sobrage was determined to make his family and all society pay for throwing him away. 
His claims that his life was a protest against the French legal system or that his love for Vietnam and Asia motivated his criminal career are absurd, but as tools of psychological manipulation, they were very effective, Neville wrote. Charles experienced neglect, parental maladaptation, as well as school bullying in his childhood. Furthermore, there were several instances in his childhood where he is exposed to intense racial suppression. With all of this information, it is widely believed that Sobrage's diagnosis is antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial personality disorder, or ASPD, like other personality disorders, is a long-standing pattern of behavior and experience that impairs functioning and causes distress. According to Harvard Medical School, people with antisocial personality disorder don't follow society's norms, are deceitful and intimidating in relationships, and are inconsiderate of the rights of others. People with this type of personality may take part in criminal activity, but if they do, they are not sorry for the hurtful deeds. They can be impulsive, reckless, and sometimes violent. This disorder is far more and more apparent in men than women. They generally do not value playing by the rules. They do so only if they are threatened with punishment. This attitude leads to a tendency to exploit others. They take advantage of fairness or soft-heartedness of others, and they feel indifferent toward or even contemptuous of their victims. A person with this disorder has little, if any, ability to be intimate with another person. Any lasting relationships are likely to involve some degree of abuse or neglect. Yet people with this disorder are sometimes charming and can be good actors who uses lies and distortion to keep relationships going. Some with ASPD have no goal beyond the pleasure of deceiving or harming others. People with ASPD appear to care for no one but themselves. They may be able to understand the emotion of others, but they don't suffer any shame or guilt about the pain they may be causing. Instead, they use their knowledge of others' weaknesses to gain favors or to manipulate an outcome. They usually do not take responsibility for any of his or her own suffering. He or she will blame others when things go badly. Many with this disorder do suffer because they can be self-defeating and never get to enjoy the many pleasures that come to people who are better able to have mutual and satisfying relationships. They can also have problems such as chronic boredom or irritability, psychosomatic symptoms, pathological gambling, alcohol and substance abuse, and a variety of mood or anxiety disorders. They also have a higher risk of suicide. A significant number have had behavior problems or attention deficit disorder, ADD, as children. Antisocial personality disorder is probably caused by a combination of factors. 
Having any of these characteristics does not necessarily mean that a person has ASPD. The factors include influences from the environment, genetic or biological factors, and brain anatomy. People with ASPD tend to have few symptoms. Rather, they cause discomfort or distress to others through socially unacceptable behavior and by being deceitful, impulsive, aggressive or irritable, reckless, irresponsible, and remorseless. If Sobrage's diagnosis is not confirmed yet, the idea that he may have ASPD seems pretty compelling to me. Though developmental and abnormal psychology are deep interests of mine, I am no way a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, just an enthusiast. There are ways to help someone experiencing this type of personality disorder, guided by a person's specific circumstances. This includes, in younger people, family or group psychotherapy may help to change destructive patterns of behavior, teach new vocational and relationship skills, and reinforce a person's social support. Psychotherapy may also help a person with this disorder learn to be more sensitive to the feelings of others and encourage new socially acceptable and productive ways of thinking about one's goals and aims. Cognitive therapy attempts to change sociopathic ways of thinking. And lastly, behavior therapy uses reward and punishment to promote good behavior. But now thinking more about it, the perception of mental health was considered taboo and not many people were willing to go get the help they needed, whether it would be in fear of being looked at and treated differently or because the individuals themselves dealing with these mental issues maybe truly believed that they didn't need the help nor guidance. Unfortunately, the stigma surrounding mental health is still prevalent today. Even though we're doing a lot better in comparison to the 70s, there's still a lot of work to be done. The more we talk about it, the less stigma there will be, in theory. I honestly believe that a lot of people may not feel 100% comfortable talking about it, but that's okay. I honestly believe that over time and with more research, that once is more understood, that people can start to feel a bit more comfortable talking about mental health. And not just in the sense of people who suffer with mental illness, but just mental health for your own peace and mind to just get through the day. Just knowing that there's someone who is willing to listen to you can be extremely beneficial. Why do you think therapists have their own therapists? Everyone needs some guidance from time to time. And with that, I thank you for listening to this episode. I know that was a lot of information, but I hope you guys enjoyed the case as much as I enjoyed retelling it to you. 
If you could please rate, review, and share this podcast wherever you're listening, I would really appreciate it. If you want to leave suggestions for topics for future episodes, you can always email me at wswkpodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to stay up to date on future episodes, you can always follow me on Instagram at wswkpodcast. I'll leave all of this information in the show notes for you guys. Stay tuned for what's coming up next because trust me, it's going to get real dirty. Bye.